Welcome back, sports fans, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here, once again, 24 hours later, ready to go with the companion piece to Cleveland Sports Questions. This is, of course, Cleveland Sports Answers. Um, so we left, um, in the first episode, uh, we set out some questions and, and answered a few of them, but I left a question, uh, I left a, a question that's, that I'm going to go into a little bit more detail in, or detail with, uh, for each of the Cleveland sports teams and the Ohio State Buckeyes, um, for, for, to, to get into a little bit more detail and kind of, um, you know, I just felt like this would be a, a good sort of a fun little companion episode, a fun way to, to break this up a little bit. Um, but I do want to start, believe it or not, I do have a different sports grievance than I had last time. Uh, the pre- yesterday's sports grievance was about Cleveland sports fans and how goddamn dumb uh, some of us tend to be about certain things. Uh, but I do have something else that sort of um, that sort of popped to mind um, as I was uh, as I was thinking about some of the things that kind of annoy me. I did land on the, the Cavaliers played uh, the Blazers last night. And uh, Scoot Henderson, like the number, I think he's the number two pick on the draft or number three, whatever it was, whoever the, wherever the Blazers were drafting, uh, Scoot Henderson was uh, one of the G League Ignite team players. And uh, G League, G League, excuse me, the G League Ignite are a team sort of associated with the G League. Um, it's it's not exactly a, a full team in the sense in the in the same way that the the rest of the G League is a sort of a minor league system for the uh, for the NBA. It's a little bit different, but essentially it's it's a team where um, some of the top draft prospects can instead of going to college, they can go play for the G League Ignite. Um, and it's, you know, it's professional basketball, but it's not exactly a um, a complete team and I'll get into that here in a second. And I just I have a beef with the G League Ignite and I have no no nothing wrong with actually um, with some of these kids, um, you know, foregoing college altogether since, you know, they still have to do, they still have to do one year in college um, or, you know, obviously some, some players have opted to go overseas. Um, you know, the Ball brothers played in Lithuania, I think it was. Um, there have been other, some other players that have, that have gone overseas. Um, and now G League Ignite the last few years has been another option for them. And this is my problem with it. That, that whole setup, I don't care. That's, who cares? That's fine. This is the problem with the G League, G League Ignite. This team is not developing players. That's not that's what the idea was that they're going to get advanced coaching and they're going to be able to hone their skills, um, you know, without going to college. But it's very clear that the Ignite Ignite is not a team that is developing players. It is a chance for them to add a few highlights for their Instagram accounts and stay in the general consciousness of NBA front offices. Right, like they need, they need some place to go so they can show off a few highlights of them dunking, um, you know, hitting some threes, whatever. Because the way the G League, the way the G, the way the regular G League plays, it is a minor league in which guys are kind of busting their asses to to go, um, you know, obviously to try to get a shot um, at the regular NBA. The Ignite is a team that exists kind of; it is associated with the G League, but it's not like part of the regular G League rotation. Um, because again, the G League players can be taken, uh, you know, I can't remember how many G League teams there are, um, but those players can be taken by NBA teams like, you know, like the minor, like the minor leagues in baseball and brought up to the team on, you know, two way contracts, 10 day contracts, whatever the G League Ignite kids cannot be taken, um, because they haven't, you know, they haven't, um, cleared one year from high school. So they are in a different sort of spot. 
uh, as opposed to the rest of the G League. Now, again, these players are supposed to be developing there, but they're not. All they are is basically they're in a glorified scrimmage. They're not really being asked to develop you know, their, their current skill set or maybe even sort of break some new territory and, and doing stuff that they hadn't done at the high school level yet. This is the Ignite is not preparing them for the NBA, and it's very obvious that some of the kids who have gone to the NBA in the past few years uh, from the G League from the G League Ignite um, are just they are miles behind, miles behind their counterparts who played at least one year in college or played even played a year overseas uh, or you know multiple years in college potentially. They are miles behind these kids. Because they are not being asked to play defense, they're not being asked to, um, you know, to learn an offensive system. Truly, it literally is just here's the ball. Go out there, scrimmage these guys for a little bit, throw some dunks down. We'll we'll put this on our, <clears throat> like I said, we'll put this on our Instagram page. You put it on your Instagram page, and we'll make sure that you have a spot. You know, we'll make sure that all the GMs are aware of what you're doing down here. All the scouts can see what you're doing down here. But it's. It's just not it's not preparing them the same way that going to college or even playing overseas would um, because the stakes are so low for this team. Again, they're, they're not playing for anything. They're not even, you know, again, these kids cannot go to the NBA straight off this team. They have to wait at least a year uh, and then obviously get drafted. Um, the the teams that are playing them are using them for, you know, sort of a, a sort of an advanced scrimmage. Um, so they don't really care what they do. They're just trying to get their work in. Um, the stakes are so low, right? They're so low. It is not. It's there's a huge difference in running a scrimmage against the um, you know the 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 Cleveland Charge, for example. Um, there's a difference between having a an easy scrimmage against them versus some of these kids going to Duke or Carolina or Kansas or you know wherever and playing in meaningful conference games, playing in uh, conference tournament games, and obviously. If they're you know if they're good enough to go to one of the big programs, playing in the playing in uh, in, the, in the NCAA tournament against other players that are um, you know potentially going to be NBA drafted into the NBA, like this whatever you've heard the term iron sharpens iron, G League Ignite is the exact opposite of iron sharpens iron. There is no real competition and the stakes are low. They are just there to make sure they're just there because they either couldn't get into college or didn't want to go to college. And they're just there throwing some highlights up to make sure that the NBA world is still aware of them. And again, the players that have the players in the past few years that have come straight off of this team, and it's not saying that they're not skilled because they are skilled. They're just not being prepped for the NBA. And if anything, they are farther behind their counterparts who went to college and got actual coaching on you know on some things that they needed to work on, as opposed to whatever's going on with Ignite. Um, they're just not getting. They're not getting prepped. They're not getting the same coaching that they would that they would get elsewhere. So there you go. There's my grievance. If you want the G League G League Ignite to be a team that um, that you know the, again, these kids are still getting drafted high or whatever, but they are clearly behind in their development process because they just weren't being challenged. If you really want this team to be something and, and these players to be something and their transition to the NBA to be a little bit better. Then whatever is going on down there in coaching and how they're and, and you know the scrimmaging and their whatever whatever it is that they're doing, it needs to change because it just isn't up to par at this point in time. All right, so that was the quick sports grievance. Um, no big deal there, but let's get on to the important stuff. Let's get into the meat and potatoes of this baby. 
Um, we're getting back to our Cleveland teams here. So, like I said, I left one question behind. And uh, these questions were just a little bit, you know, I don't want to say like more in-depth necessarily, but <clears throat> I feel like the answers to them are, you know, just uh, make for a good episode on their own. So this was the question that I left uh, for today. And that was, how do we even, or let me, let me, uh, let me backtrack here. I'll give you the question that I got, that I gave yesterday. And the, fir- the first, so the first question was, what is the reality of Deshaun Watson and the Browns going forward? And it was a long answer. Um, you can go ahead and check back on that episode from yesterday if you want my answer on that one. But the one that I left for today was, um, and it wasn't, by the way, it wasn't a flattering answer. Um, but the one that I left for today for the Browns was, how do we even measure success for this particular season, especially given that Deshaun Watson is now going to end up missing the rest of the season when it looked like he was kind of finally finally getting his feet underneath him and finally looked like the looked much more like the quarterback that was in Houston than uh, you know the the recent vintage of Deshaun Watson. So how do we even measure success for this season? And I think this is a two-pronged answer. And I think the first for me and I think for I mean obviously the people in in the building in Berea their expectations are the same, but I I do think that amongst the fan base and um you know, amongst the fan base and even like outside of our fan base, I think there's still the expectation that the Browns have a, the Browns have an all world type of defense. Um, you know, we're not talking like the, the Ravens defensive, whenever that was 2000, 2001, whatever it was that literally, you know, I, I you could put together an all-star team and, and they still couldn't move the ball against that defense. But we're talking about one of the, one of the really great defenses in the history of the Browns for sure. We have it right now. Um, God, I gotta stop saying we. I'm not in the Browns. The Browns have it right now. Um, legitimately, one of the best defenses that they've ever had. And I think, based on that, that alone, um, the fact that they still have a very solid running game even without Nick Chubb, it almost feels like the quarterback, um, and it's going to be Dorian Thompson Robinson, um, going well. You know, obviously until, I guess until the wheels fall off of, of that. Um, you know, rookie fifth round draft pick. You never know how that's going to turn out, but. I think the expectation is that as long as DTR doesn't screw things up and you know throw interceptions and and turn the ball over and make terrible plays, that this team is good enough to get into the playoffs. And I do think that they are, especially the way that they've started. Um, you know, they've really only they've truly only blown one game. Is is my feeling? Um, they've really only blown one game and probably have. Probably could hang, uh, you know, there's a few mistakes in, in, the loss to, in the loss to Seattle. But I really feel like they've only blown one game. And that was the, the game in which Chubb got injured in Pittsburgh. Um, it just feels like, it, I mean, Pittsburgh only scored like 12 points. But defensively, they were, um, you know, defensively, they had a defensive touchdown. Um, they made, Browns made all sorts of turnovers. It just felt like they just kind of gave the game away. Um, but nonetheless, they're 6-3. and three, And it feels like, as long as the quarterback doesn't screw things up, they should be able to make the playoffs. But if they don't make the playoffs, you know, going with, um, you know, with two backups at this point, um, should they not make the playoffs? This is where, this is where I think, I think making the playoffs, that, that is, we've, we've met the bar for success. And would it be great to win a game in the playoffs? Absolutely. It just, again, it things, this is going to be harder with, with backup quarterbacks. So that's like the first part of the answer here. The second part is where it gets interesting, and it really begins to concern. Um, as I mentioned before about uh, yesterday about uh, you know Kevin Stefanski's job security and so on and so forth, I think it depends on how the team looks down the stretch if they do miss the playoffs. 
if they you know if they end up going 10 and 7 and they lose a tie break to which is possible the AFC is very very good there's a lot of teams that are going to be there's a lot of teams that are going to be at that 9 and 8 10 and 7 mark uh come the end of the season so if it um so if it comes down to some kind of tie break or something um and and the Browns just miss out I think that that it would really suck but I think that there's this sort of there's this inherent sort of feeling that like we didn't make the playoffs but we still considering all the things that happened during the course of the season the fact that they were there at the very end shouldn't be looked on as a failure it should be looked on as a, as a success and I do think that that matters for Kevin Stefanski, Andrew Barry. They're both going into not this season, but the next season is the last year in their contracts. But um, usually in in most in most pro professional sports leagues, coaches and GMs on their last years, um, they you rarely see those them go into a season without uh, some kind of guarantee, even if it's a short extension or whatever, um, because it just you know there's just not many very lame duck coaches. Or lame duck front, you know, um, GMs, presidents, whatever. There's not that many of them. Um, so I, but I think that if if they go in, let's just say they go nine and eight or ten and seven, and they just miss out of the playoffs, and they manage to keep the you know hold everything together with backups, you know, piloting the the you know navigating the rest of the season. I think that it's again, it's, it kind of sucks, but you have to look at it as like, man, this team kind of overachieved. Now, again, we're sitting here at six and three. If they wind up seven and ten, or eight and nine, something like that, you know, they 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 biff, they kind of trip over themselves the rest of the way. Then I think you really do have to look at it as, you know, well, you guys really, you know, you just needed to play average, and you could have made it in, and you couldn't even do that, even with a great defense, even with a really solid running attack. Um, you know, you couldn't even, you couldn't even just play average and, and kind of back your way into the playoffs. So I think, I think that if, if, you know, things really go south, if this team falls apart, then it really is a complete failure of a season on multiple levels. It's a failure because of once again, burning another year of, of Deshaun Watson's guaranteed $46 million, um, burning a year, another year of the, of, of the primes of some of the best defensive players in the league. Um, but burning a year, um, you know, with, uh, with a head coach in front office who seemed like they were, you know, were, were finally sort of, um, you know, on board, or should say on the same page, uh, burning that year and potentially, um, you know, bring, you know, uh, bringing at least, bring at least the question up that could this, could we be hitting the reset button again on the coaching staff in the front office? And it, again, if things really go south, uh, knock on wood that they don't. But if things really go south, I think that that really puts a big mark on the team and opens this up for more questions and the possibility that there is sort of another reset um, with the coaching staff, with the front office, and potentially with some players is a very, very real possibility. And that could be looked at as nothing other than a failure if that happens. Okay, so enough doom and gloom uh, there. There's just so much. There's just so much intrigue with the Browns, and, and a lot of it could be bad if things go the wrong way. But um, you know, I'm I'm hopeful, and actually, I again, I think that there is just a lot of optimism that you know maybe you know they're not going to be Super Bowl contenders, but I still feel like the Browns are a playoff team nonetheless. But let's get into it. Let's let's turn to the Cavaliers. 
Uh, yesterday I asked, um, you know, about how the Donovan Mitchell experiment is going to end. Um, and I do think if you want the, the full answer, uh, again, you can check out yesterday's episode. I do think that, you know, Donovan's not going to end up being a Cavalier for the next like five seasons. Um, and he's going to end up, um, you know, elsewhere, uh, you know, either, either, either via trade or, you know, we let his, you know, we try to kind of put things together for one run and, and his contract expires and he signs elsewhere. Uh, more than likely, I think that's how it ends. Um, but I did leave this question, um, and this is going to have some fun with this one, but I did leave this question for today. And that is, will LeBron finish his career in Cleveland? Ooh, a little conspiracy question. So, I the NBA is somehow the league that always has the most sort of, um, I, I don't know, that has like the most conspiracy sort of... Um, I guess amongst its fan base, you can count a lot of conspiracy theories, conspiracy theorists amongst its fan base. Uh, even 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 people who are sort of talking heads in the within the league, you know, commentators, columnists, and things like that, um, kind of have a little bit of a conspiratorial edge uh, to some of the writing sometimes. And it it just it's just because this league feels like it can, it feels like it's because the NBA just certain things happen a certain way, like. There's the one of the classic conspiracy theories is when the Knicks got Patrick Ewing. Um, obviously, the NBA had interest in making you know revamping um, or yeah revamping the the New York market, the New York basketball market, and the best way to do that would be to get the uh, you know the exciting center from Georgetown um, to to play in a big market, you know play in the Garden, play for one of the NBA's historic teams. And on draft night, they they did like a an envelope, like a tumbler full of envelopes or whatever. It's done differently now, but um, it's like a tumbler full of envelopes that they put the envelope in. And if you watch the video, it looks as though uh, David Stern, I think it's David Stern. I, I mean, obviously he pulls the envelope up, out, but I can't remember if he puts if he if he's the one who's putting them in. But it looks like uh, the envelope gets banged on the side of like the tumbler, the big drum that they're spinning them in. So that like one corner was folded, so that they knew which one to pick out, uh, and and to you know that that was the Knicks card, so that they knew that um, you know the, that Patrick Ewing was going to go to the Knicks. You just have to go grab that card with the bent edge. There's the there's the um, the Cavs have had some have been on the fortunate end of a few conspiracy theories. Um, obviously, getting the number one draft pick when uh, oh lo and behold, uh, you know. There's the you know the the best basketball player of his generation is literally in your backyard and again the NBA needs to pump up the the Cleveland the Cleveland market and make Cleveland a relevant sports market and obviously it was um, when LeBron James was here and then fast forward the Cavs landing multiple multiple times in the course of four years landing the number one overall pick to get Kyrie Irving and then to get. Um, to get the the chips and, and pieces necessary to trade for uh, to trade for Kevin Love and get LeBron James back in Cleveland to win a title, um, I will say this though the if if I count me as a conspiracy theorist for um, the I believe it's the Andrew Wiggins number one overall um, year yeah because the, then we we traded that pick for uh, for Kevin Love um, I maintain that that was blood money for when we had to pick Anthony Bennett. I maintain that that's that is blood money. That was a big apology from the NBA. That sorry you got you got the number one overall draft pick in one of the. There were still some good players that got drafted in. I think it was two thousand. Was it two thousand eleven or no? It had to be two thousand 
10 maybe. I can't remember. I may be, I may be conflating my years here, but whatever year the Anthony Bennett draft was, it felt like the NBA owed owed Cleveland an apology, so they gave him the number one draft pick again. Um, that's I maintain that that's a real thing. But anyway, so the NBA, so the NBA is kind of open to these like conspiracy theories, um, and obviously players, you know, it's the league where wherein the players have a very, you know, ownership still um, ownership the ownership level still has like the power, but compared to compared to baseball, baseball or football especially. Um, and I don't know how player movement works in hockey that well, but especially compared to baseball and football, um, players have so much more agency in the NBA than they do in the other leagues um, comparatively. So it does, again, the NBA does open itself up to kind of conspiracy theories because it feels like players can orchestrate things a very particular way too. So all that, coming back to this question, will LeBron finish his career in Cleveland? Is anybody going to be the least bit surprised if Bronny, if LeBron Jr., Bronny James, or perhaps even Bryce in a couple of years, anyone going to be that surprised if one or one of them ends up in Cleveland uh, in the draft? Because I'm not going to be that surprised. If one of his kids lands in Cleveland via the draft, a.k.a. Adam Silver arranges it, um, it would be too good of a storyline for the NBA, for Cleveland, for Cleveland sports, for the relevancy of the Cleveland market, it would just be too good of a storyline to pass up to have LeBron James, uh, you know, Akron's Akron's son, the just a kid from Akron, the the favorite son of Northeast Ohio, the guy who brought Cleveland um, its first championship in over fifty years, to to team up with his son. Who Bronny James, who was born in Cleveland, uh, well, probably born in Akron actually, but nonetheless born in this area, grew up here, you know, went to school here before moving to LA. Um, it would just be one of the most unique storylines to have them both playing together in quote unquote their hometown. And if the Cavs are still good in a couple of seasons, which you know they probably should be still pretty good in a couple of seasons, um, could you imagine if LeBron comes back to Cleveland? wins a title with his son in their hometown, you know, again, their home region, uh, we'll just call it hometown, wins a title for the hometown team in their hometown together, I would have to imagine that that would be the first in the history of American sports to have a father and son on the same team win a championship. I could be wrong. I mean, obviously, it's it's very rare to have father and son play on the same team anyway. Um, Ken Griffey and Ken Griffey Jr. obviously did it. I'm sure if you go back, I'm sure it's happened other times. Um, perhaps, I don't know, maybe, probably in hockey. You know, there are some players that played like 20 plus seasons in hockey. So maybe it's possible it happened in hockey. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but I have to imagine it would just be the first in the history of American sports if you had a father-son duo win a championship together. And then, you know, have LeBron right off into the sunset, you know, once again being a hero for Cleveland. It's just one of those storylines that is so fucking good. How could the NBA not want to manipulate and arrange things to make it happen? Okay, moving on to baseball. Talking about our Guardians, our Cleveland Guardians. If you if you live in Cleveland, you know that song. It's awful. But anyway, uh, yeah, the, the Guardians have their own song. Um, talking about the Guardians here, yesterday I, we posited the question, you know, is Tito Francona... Two questions about Tito Francona. 
one is is the is the error of good competitive guardians baseball over for you know at least for a little while um uh i say no and is tito actually done managing baseball managing a a baseball team i also say no um i think that he's going to come back in some capacity Uh, he's going to come back in, in at some point in time when he's finally feeling healthy again um again listen to yesterday's episode for more d- details on that but for today a little bit more getting into more of the, the strategy if you will of of the guards and what moves should the guards make next season this is a big one because as, as i mentioned um yesterday the team is essentially intact there's not a lot of there's not a lot of um uh, turnover uh this year w- with the club um all the people that need to be signed are signed um Obviously, there's always like some bullpen arms and, and pieces like that, but we actually are getting players back from injury. Um, the key players, you know, like like your Jose Jose Ramirez, like your Andres Jimenez, um, they are locked up. You still have guys like Quan and uh, Naylor on their first contracts, so all the all the key pieces are there, um, but they obviously need more because uh, you know because they just last year I, I think. I think it's possible that um, I hit more home runs than the entire outfield did last year. Uh, that's that's obviously you know a home run power. You don't need to hit, you don't need to lead the league in home run, but you need a lineup that has multiple threats to at least occasionally drive the ball out of the ballpark. And last year, Ho- Jose Ramirez, the last few years, um, has led the league in intentional walks. You'd think it'd be like Aaron Judge or someone like that, but it's Jose Ramirez, all five foot nine of them. Five foot nine, one hundred eighty pounds of him, because there's just the the lineup around him just isn't that strong. Now, some guys took a step, big step forward. Uh, Josh Naylor was great, um, was great this season. Unfortunately, when he got uh, injured, his oblique, that's that's you know at least a four week injury, usually a six week injury, and it definitely cost the the Guardians uh definitely cost the Guardians big time uh, towards the end of the year when he got injured. Um, and again, teams were just able to pitch right around Jose uh, because there just wasn't any protection for him. So there, you know, you need to lengthen the lineup, get a little bit of protection. I love Miles Straw's defense, but he's he is definitely a fourth outfielder. He's the kind of he's the kind of player that should play a lot, but he should play, you know, come in as late inning defense, pinch, you know, pinch run, uh, get a start here and there. Um, he's just not. It'd be different if he could bunt, get on base, and and you know, occasionally hit hit a few doubles, you know, hit a few home runs, uh, but he just doesn't do that. He, it, like I, I think. The dream scenario would be if he would if he were to turn into some kind of Kevin Kiermaier type player, um, but he's just not there. So he's really like a fourth or a fifth outfielder. Um, you need someone with some punch. So the big what they really need to focus on is obviously um, a bat, preferably an outfield bat. You know, someone like someone like Lourdes Gurriel would be great. Um, Hunter Renfro would also be great. How Hunter Renfro doesn't have. How no one's just signed him to a three or four year deal it just boggles my mind. Um, he's good for twenty five home runs every year. Um, doesn't you know maybe isn't the rangiest outfielder, but he's got an absolute cannon for an arm. Um, the dream scenario would be like Jorge Soler to to come to Cleveland, take up um, you know left or right field wherever they feel you know probably right field um, plus some DHing. That would be the dream scenario. I, I just, it's not going to happen, but. I do have an even bigger dream scenario. And while this does seem entirely, entirely improbable, impossible, it does sort of make sense in a lot of ways. So here we go. 
the Guardians should make a serious run at Shohei Otani. Yes, I am I am not fucking around. The guards are actually kind of the perfect team for him. Here's why. So obviously Otani's not gonna be able to pitch next year. Um he's just gonna DH. Um, you know, who knows what the who knows what the what the who knows what the, the what the prognosis is for next year when he's going to be kind of coming rounding into into complete health, but if someone could get prepped and ready for next March, after having Tommy John surgery, obviously he's not going to be throwing, but still it still takes a while for your arm strength and everything, and for your you know for your arm strength and for like the pain level and for you know all the rehab you have to do it takes a while, even if you're just coming back to hit. Um, you know, ask Bryce Harper about that. But if anyone can do it on a, on a faster timetable, it's Otani because he's, I don't think he's actually a human being. But that's fine. We don't need Otani to pitch next year. The Guardians have a lot of pitching depth. I mean, they go at least six deep um, in terms of guys that uh, are major league caliber pitchers, plus multiple guys at AAA uh, and even AA who could be ready uh, to pitch you know, in the next season or in a pinch with injuries or whatever. So, realistically speaking, the Guardians have potentially like eight pitchers that um, that could be that you know that are at least, if not in the major leagues already, close to the major league level. So we don't even need him to pitch next year. Um, he can just DH. Um, we you know we want to give some at bats to uh, you know we want to give some DH bats DH at bats to still want to give some DH at bats to Josh Naylor or whatever. But um, you know it, it's. It's it's be- I want him. He needs to be our everyday first baseman. We know no splitting time with someone else. Um, uh, you know, obviously a, a day off here or there is different, but we still Otani can take up the main D, the bulk of the DH spots, DH at bats. Um, you know, give him a day off here and there when he needs it, whatever. But basically, long story for long, long, short point long. Um, uh, uh, Otani doesn't need to pitch for the Guardians next year, but when he does return to pitch. Again, I think that this is a guy that can do this simply because he's an absolute alien. Um, when he does re- return to pitch, the guards are uniquely positioned for him. You teams have to sort of teams have to give teams have to carry an extra starter. Um, the Angels, uh, you know, in his in his tenure with the Angels, had to carry an extra starter. They had a six man rotation essentially to make sure that Otani got plenty of time in between starts to prepare in between starts and let his body rest. So you had, um, so you had a six man rotation, which was, you know, it's unusual. Most teams can't really, most teams can't really do that. They, they don't have another pitcher that can eat up, you know, a hundred, 120 innings, uh, and, and be competitive. Right. Um, but the guardians do, like I said, the guardians go at least seven, possibly eight deep. And there is a guy, there is someone, someone will be there to take up that sixth that sixth slot and essentially um, eat up about 100 to 120 innings as as the sixth starter. The Guardians are uniquely positioned to do that. That the fact that we have extra arms at the major league level that most teams don't. Most teams most teams don't go beyond four deep in terms of major league caliber starting pitching. Um, a lot of teams have three major league caliber starting pitchers and they just kind of hope and pray with the last two spots. The Guardians don't have to do that because they have so many quality. They have quality. I'm not saying all-stars, superstars, Cy Young type pitchers. I'm just saying guys that when you put them out there, they're competitive every single night, every single start. So 
again, Guardians uniquely positioned to um, to make this a reality to ease the ease the pitching burden uh, on on Otani. Now, obviously, the big thing here is the cost, right? The Guardians aren't really in the business of paying guys much more than twenty five million dollars a year. I think I think Jose Ramirez makes like twenty six or twenty seven million a year or something like that. And you know that's it's a shit ton of money. It's like the biggest contract the Guardians have ever signed anyone to. Uh, but you know, compared to what some other players are making, you know, thirty-five, you know, to forty million dollars a year, Otani is when it, when he does sign with whomever. I would assume I would assume he actually ends up staying in Anaheim just because of it's a team that is already kind of built and equipped to handle what he does, right? Um, but anyway, it, it's you know the Guardians just don't pay that kind of money to, to players. And Otani is going to command, you know, at least 40, if not closer to 50, 55 million dollars a year. But here's the thing. It's not the AAV. It's not the average annual value of a contract that kills teams. What kills teams is locking players in for 10 years, paying paying exorbitant amounts of money for past performance on the promise of future production and extended, prolonged future production. Um you know, look at the last several years of the Miguel Cabrera contract. And I, I'm, even though he was, uh, you know, one of our arch nemesis, I'm still a big uh, Miggy fan. Miguel Cabrera, one of the best I've ever seen play. Um, but th- his last several years, you know, paying him 30 plus million dollars a year to, you know, essentially be a part-time DH that only hits about like eight to 10 home runs a year is ludicrous. And it's again, not because of the, how much money any one year cost the Tigers, it's that the Tigers were on the hook for I, I think the to- the totality of the deal was like was like twelve years, and they were on the hook for twelve years of a three hundred some million dollar contract. That's what kills teams not having the flexibility in the long term. It feels like and I and I've, you've noticed some teams have signed these big time players. You don't really see ten year. You've seen a couple: uh, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout with the big with the huge long contract. They were also significantly younger. Than a lot of guys. Uh, same with um, uh, Fernando Tatis. They were significantly younger um, than some of these deals that were given out. Uh, like Miggy signed his deal when he was, I want to say, like 28, 29 or whatever. Um, so there, so some of these guys were a little bit more recent times. These guys have been a, bit, a little bit younger. But you've more, more. The thing that's more common are these three and four year deals at a very high average annual value you know, a four-year deal at like $150 million or something like that. And I think even a really exorbitant contract, a single, you know, a couple, a single season of $55 million, while it does seem crippling, if you're only doing that for a couple of seasons, it's not really that crippling. You are kind of saying that this is our window. We're going to do everything we can in this window to do it. So I think, again, sorry, taking the very circuitous path to this to this answer here, I think that you could feasibly get Otani into Cleveland. Again, it's not really going to happen, but I'm just saying under these parameters, three years, $165 million, $55 million a year. One year, we're not expecting him to, to pitch, of course, but the other two years, you know, you're, you're going to pitch and hit. You're getting, you're getting the highest, you're getting the highest AAV contract of any player in the league. Um, you know, for three seasons. And then if it doesn't work out in those three seasons, feel free to go someplace else and sign another similar deal. 
um, with a high AAV. So and and for the and for the Guardians, you're not going to cripple your payroll for a decade. You're going to cripple it for two or three years. That's it. And if it, if it's apparent that it's not even working out after the first couple of years, um, you can trade them and and move that burden on, and you can bounce back quicker than you can when you hand out these 10, 12, 13, 14 year deals worth $450 million. So is it pie in the sky? Absolutely. It's pie in the sky. It is. <laughs> there's no possible way um, that the guardians would ever do this. Um, I think, I think under the right circumstances, they would have jumped at maybe making a deal for someone like Juan Soto when he had a little bit more control. Um, if, if the price was right, but again, you know, in that case, that would have been more of an all-in sort of like we're on the cusp. It's an all-in kind of move. Um, so I don't think they would, even though Soto is still quote unquote somewhat affordable now. I don't think they're going to they're going to do a lot of trade. They wouldn't they wouldn't make that trade now with only a single year of control. If Soto had two years of control left or three years of control left, I think that's a different story for the guards simply because they have the prospects. Um, the pitching prospects uh, to to make a deal, but that would also be a big pie in the sky sort of um, you know fantasy or whatever. But I, again, Shohei Otani, improbable, obviously, impossible. I don't think it's impossible. That's all I'm saying. And lastly, we'll finish up with the Ohio State Buckeyes, the Ohio State University, the Buckeyes. Um, so I kind of talked about uh, the team without Marvin Harrison and how it, it feels like. This year and and next year, we're kind of emptying the cupboards of all the the big time players we've had uh, during this great run of of of, of success at Ohio State, and um, you know Marvin Harrison maybe the biggest sort of name that's that's going to come that's going to leave um, that's going to leave Columbus. Uh, but you know, just talked about what that team looks like, and I don't think it's as dire as maybe it feels like. But for today, this is something that. I am very eager to talk about. And this is what happens if Ryan Day and OSU part ways. And this is, to me, a very dangerous sort of proposition. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of people in the Buckeyes fan base that are kind of continuously pissed off with Ryan Day for not winning a championship for, you know, obviously more recently losing to Michigan a couple of times, whatever. And there's people that, um, I, I know one of them. I text with one of them. I text with one of them regularly on Saturdays about uh, our, our Buckeye frustrations, and they it, it, they are emblematic of a lot of people at the, of you know of the Ohio State fan base that it just like you know why can't we do this? Why can't we do this? Why can't Ryan Day win? Why can't this? And I I sometimes I don't understand the frustration. Sometimes I do. Like you know there have been a couple of games. There's always a couple of games in an Ohio State season where they're playing, uh, you know, like Rutgers or Indiana or something, and they seemingly just can't pull away from the team. You know, or they're playing Iowa and they, you know, they end up winning like twenty to nine or something like that. And it's just like, God, why? How can you struggle with Iowa? Uh, how can you struggle with Rutgers or whatever? But there's always a game like that in, uh, especially in conference play. But when you look, but when you look around college football. There's always every big every big name team has a game like that. Usually, it's against a conference opponent, um, simply because those teams know each other so well. But I think I think it was last year or maybe the year before. I think it was two years ago. 
Georgia was struggling with Kent, Kent State. Um, it, it just happens. You know, it's weird. Keep in mind, these are like 20-year-old kids, 19 and 20-year-old kids. Um, so strange things are bound to happen every now and then. So what I'm getting at here is that to the people that are very, that get frustrated with Ryan Day and the, the people that like want Ryan Day out, be very careful what you wish for. Ryan Day has won 90% of his games at OSU. The exact same winning percentage as Urban Meyer, whom everyone uh, lauds and, um, you know, heaps praise on. Uh, you know, there's there's been talk like, would Urban want to come back to Ohio State if, if OSU were to uh, fire Ryan Day? I have this, like, listen, Herb is did great things for Ohio State. I'm not sure I want that mess back. Um, and I say that simply because of recent baggage, the the way that the way that Urban operates within his programs, you know, former players and former coaches and things. Not that not that they're going to talk shit about him necessarily, but there's a certain way that Urban Meyer operates, and I have a feeling that that sort of shine came straight off um, after his brief tenure in Jacksonville, and obviously the. The controversy after that um, at a steakhouse. You can you can see the videos on the internet. Um, I think the shine of of what Urban Meyer was completely came off after his stint in Jacksonville, that disastrous stint in Jacksonville, and maybe even he doesn't have a taste for coaching anymore. But again, be careful what you wish for. Letting a big time coach, and this is you know, and this is if he gets fired, even even if a coach big time coach retires. It's very, very dangerous, right? Letting a big-time coach walk away from a program or firing a big-time coach, it's very, very dangerous because you – how can you guarantee that the next guy that you pick is going to win 90% of their games and be a college football playoff contender every single year? How can you guarantee that? You can't. It is very, very – this is a gift horse that while it does, you know, while there aren't – well, we haven't won national championships every single year that Ryan Day has been the head coach. The fact that they are in play for them is a lot better than the alternative. It's a lot better than the John Cooper years. It's a lot better. It's a lot better than uh, the one year of Luke Fickle, who has become gone on to become a great coach. But you know, after um, after uh, Trust after Trestle was fired, um, you know, Luke Fickle took the reins as an interim coach. Um, you know, unexpectedly. But you know, I think they won. I think they went six and seven that year, or six and five, something like that. Um, you know, ask ask Michigan about replacing uh, Lloyd Carr after he retired. Ask, um, tell me how eager, tell me how eager uh, Alabama is to move on from Nick Saban, even if it feels like the best of the Nick Saban era is over. I can't imagine that Alabama is just going to fire him because what do you? Where do you pivot to next? Um, you know, for and again, I'm not I'm not saying that Ryan Day is Nick Saban, but when you have a commodity that you know that you know well and is winning, how do you pivot away from it to the unknown? The only way you can really set your program back by doing that. Um, the only way that you can, to me, turn away from someone like Ryan Day, the only way you can turn away from him is if you're moving on to Kirby Smart. That is the only way you do that. But then why would he leave Georgia? Why would Kirby Smart leave his situation at Georgia to come to Ohio State? There is no reason for him to do that. 
if you make a move just to make a move, if you make a move just because you're frustrated that, um, you know, you're frustrated that Ohio State doesn't look as dominant as they should look, you you stand to make the program significantly worse. And not just like in the interim, you could make the program worse for an extended period of time. Again, look at what the wrong hire, look what the wrong hires did to Michigan. Look at what the wrong hires did to Notre Dame. Look at what the wrong hire does to these programs. It really can set them back significantly. So if you make the wrong hire. So I, I, it is just one of those things. It's again, the grass isn't always greener, you know, or be careful what you wish for. I, I just have this feeling that we, if there is some, some very abrupt departure that is not of Ryan Day's volition, if Ryan Day ends up leaving to take an NFL head coaching job or some other head coaching job or whatever, that's different. Like you can't stop him from doing that. But if Ohio State were to fire him, oof, boy, you would better have something, a sure thing in your back pocket because it is not every day that you run into coaches that win 90% of their games. All right, so that does it for this little nugget of an episode. Uh, we will be back next week with an episode every day next week uh, for your holiday week enjoyment. Uh, we are doing the best of the best week. Uh, <clears throat> it'll be uh, be a series of minisodes on the best uh, the best sports movie, best sports TV show, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You'll see new episode every day, probably about. Uh, you know, 10 to 15, 10 to 20 minutes in length, probably shooting for about 15 or so. But we'll have a new episode every day next week. And then we uh, will have a couple more to finish out our sports bonanza November uh, for you. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. We'll catch you on the flip side. Peace.